Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. <laughs> yes, I can clearly see that I rolled a one. <laughs> While the Yeti determines my fate, I wanted to tell you about our friends at Sanity Damage. They're an amazing D&D actual play live show. The campaign features a high seas adventure full of piracy, steampunk, and Lovecraftian horror elements. You can find Sanity Damage on any podcasting platform or watch the party live on YouTube. Catch them bi-weeklies on Thursdays at 7.30 Eastern Time on YouTube at The Homebrew d and I'll throw it in the show notes to make it easy. Oh, and never let a Yeti be the DM. Hello, and welcome to Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner. I am one of your hosts, Jimmy Gasparro, and I am super excited to talk to my guest tonight. Um, I've done uh, an interview, uh, a written interview with uh, them before for for Comic Book Yeti, um, but I've been a fan of their work for a long time. Um, You might know uh, them from their work on The Dregs, Her Infernal Descent, I Breathed a Body. The Brother of All Men, Nature's Labyrinth, Lonely Receiver, No One's Rose, Undone by Blood, and The Replacer, which are, I, I, I couldn't put them in an order of favorites. I love them all. Well, you know what? I, I really like I Breathe the Body. That might be at the top. Um, but please, please welcome to the podcast, Zach Thompson. Zach, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me. And, and yeah, thank you for following my work over the years. I've been a busy guy. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have. And that's not even to mention, like, the work you've done for Marvel. And I know you've done work for DC. Um, and, you know, there's mm-hmm. several things that I've, that, you know, that you've done that aren't on that list. But um, those were just some of the ones that if anyone who's listening to this, who is, you know, not familiar with your work, um, I, 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 I really do like I Breathe the Body. And... Uh, I would say start with the dregs, though. I think that was my first introduction to uh, to your work, um, and then it was just off to the races uh, from there. Um, and it's funny because I follow your newsletter as well. Um, you know, the voice in your head is mine, and um, I really like your writing. And it, one of the things I, I wanted to say and, and and tell listeners, which I think is interesting, is that I think a lot of times we gravitate to different. To, to work that speaks to us or to writers that maybe we think have, we have something in common with what I like about your writing is uh, your influences. The things you talk about, I, I don't, I, I don't know that I've seen or read a lot of it or, or that we have like a ton in common. And I find your work like challenging. Like I, I thought I breathed a body was one of the most you're with, um, uh, uh, Andrew McDonald. Um, I, just yeah, one of the yeah. most challenging comics I have ever read. And I just loved it. Um, you have a like a, a David Cronenberg influence, which I mean, I've seen The Fly and I've seen a, a couple of his other films, but like you're on like another level and it's not something I would gravitate towards. And I just I, I find it so fascinating that I really um, just enjoy your writing and the collaborators that you choose and the books you put together. And it's just not anything that I thought I would gravitate towards, but I just, um, I, I love it. 
So thanks for coming on the podcast. So I could basically tell you how much I love your work. <laughs> well, thanks so much, man. Yeah. I mean, like I try really hard to um, differentiate myself and sort of just like indulge the things that I like. And um, I actually just saw like Ram V talking about this the other day, but basically like if you read all the same stuff that everyone else is reading and you watch all the same stuff that everyone else is watching, you end up sounding a lot like everyone else. And so I've really uh, decided early on that it was just best to sort of indulge the things that um, I really, really like and the things that are like uniquely uh, speaking to me so I can kind of transpose that sort of influence through my work. So I, I'm glad to hear it resonates because, yeah, that's all by design. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it does. It it really does work. And um, I mean, I think you have uh, certain comic books that if um, like if someone came to me and they were asking, you know, oh, I listened to the podcast and I haven't read any of, of Zach Thompson's work. Um, but I really don't like, you know, like David Cronenberg. I really don't like this. Like, I think you have work that's more accessible. Um, even something like, uh, like undone by blood, certainly, or, or no one's rose. But I I think if you give yourself the chance for listeners who haven't read it yet, to like dip your, your toe in the water with the drags and work your way to something like I breathed a body or, or lonely receiver. I, I think you'll find it's a very like challenging but rewarding reading experience. And again, I think I think Lonely Receiver was um Rye Hickman. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And just fantastic artwork in that and just just loved it. Yeah, Rye's one of those like dream collaborators where we just like instantly got each other and then it was like we just sort of like we're on the same wavelength with that book in a way that like it's almost like a blur because it, it, we just jived so well that like five months flew by and the book was done. Wow. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah, that seems like a, a, a very short time frame to put something like that together. Yeah. Well, Rye uh, is like a speed demon as well. They, they <laughs> color their own work and, and they're just like so skilled in terms of like, I think um, they are often working on like two comics at the same time. So they're like, yeah, which is, uh, I, you know, I I can barely draw. So, like, the idea of drawing two books at the same time and coloring one of them is like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, um, I also, uh, I cannot draw. Um, I one time followed a video to try and do a, a, like, a head sketch of the Hulk, and I thought it looked really good. I've never been able to replicate what I did that day, and I've, I've, <laughs> I've, never, I've never done anything close since, but, you know. <laughs> I had one day where I did a decent sketch of the Hulk's face. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's all you need. Just that one good day. That was it. Just that, that one good day. Um, you know, but, uh, maybe we'll get into some, like to touch on some of your other work a little bit later, but, um, your newest book, which is uh, coming out in February from Oni press is cemetery kids don't die. Um, with uh, uh Daniel Irizarry, Brittany Peer. It's lettered by uh the fine folks at And World Design. Um mm-hmm. thank you. You sent over the first issue. Uh I thought it was great. Uh, I have a um soft spot in my heart for like a- any type of sibling story. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Um 
Uh, I, my, I'll, 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 I do it every podcast, but a shout out to my younger brother, Bobby. He's the Cryptid Creator Corner's number one most dedicated listener. He listens to all my episodes. Um, but awesome. Uh, yeah, my, my brother and I are pretty close. There are times when we, you know, certainly haven't been like any siblings. Um, but we, uh, you know, we, we, a- any story that kind of touches on sibling relationships, I always kind of like, have a tendency to gravitate towards. So I was really interested in the dynamic uh, between Pick and um, Birdie Cutter, I think is their last name, right? Yeah. 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 And that, so, um, that's something that I love. Like, I, I don't think there's enough stories about siblings out there, to be perfectly honest. Um, and so it's something that I have been thinking a lot about because I have two brothers, um, a younger brother and an older brother. And uh, I, I've talked about this a little bit, but like the book was, I guess we should probably introduce the idea behind the book. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, why don't you tell listeners what Cemetery Kids Don't Die is all about? Then we can get into it. So um, Cemetery Kids Don't Die is about four kids known as the Cemetery Kids who play a highly addictive, highly immersive video game in their sleep called Nightmare Cemetery. Um, it takes place in an undefined future um, where everything kind of sucks, but video games are sort of like peak entertainment. Um, so the idea is you can go in this dream world, you can become uh, some sort of fantasy type character, like a warrior, a hunter, a druid, what have you, um, and spend your nights uh, adventuring through this like dream space um, with your friends and then wake up fully refreshed with no sort of after effects, or at least that's how it's pitched. But as you read the book, you quickly realize it's not that simple. But the the main sort of emotional heart of the book is Pick and Birdie Cutter, two siblings who five years before the book takes place went through some trauma together and haven't really been able to talk about it. Um, But the game is a a space where they're actually able to sort of cooperate and be really good friends. That's something that they're absolutely lacking in the real world. Um, So that drives the main character, Birdie, um, she's got a lot of tension about that. Why can't her brother actually meet her on that level in the real world? And so it's very much a meditation on secondary realities and sort of how uh, we can be different people in different spaces and how that's kind of freeing, but at the same time limiting because you have to kind of take those skills out into the real world. Yeah, I, I found it really interesting, especially in terms of Birdie. Um, like the way she talked to her brother, both in the game and out of the game. And especially those times where they would, I think there's a scene in particular, a couple of panels where they start the game if, as they were having a conversation, like Birdie tries to like continue it. And it's interesting to see in the the artwork and, and Daniel Irizarry's artwork is fantastic. Both oh, the, the, ga- yeah. the game stuff and the real world stuff. Um, just just the, the different looks, the difference in terms of the, the panel borders. Um, I, you know, the, uh, I really like the differences between the two. Um, and, uh, I think Brittany Peer does the, the coloring work that there's that green, there's like a green tint to a lot of the, the uh, nightmare cemetery world, which, um, I think is a nice contrast to what happens when they're, when they're in the real world. But, um, yeah, the the dynamic in that relationship, especially the way Birdie tries to talk to Pick and how Pick reacts in game, um, I just uh, I found very interesting and was really drawn, you know, drawn to that relationship. Awesome, yeah. I mean, um, 
what I was going to say earlier is like my relationship with my younger brother actually sort of was formed uh, in World of Warcraft. We were sort of like not super close. And then WoW came out. We rolled some characters together. And then before long, we had gotten to the end game together and we were doing raids and stuff um, for basically anyone who hasn't played World of Warcraft. That's like we put in several months of work and got to a point where we were at the max level at the end game and wow and that is just really difficult to do if you're not uh communicating and cooperating and that was something that we were like previously incapable of doing in real life uh so like i often look back on wow and that sort of like second space that we occupied together as sort of the beginning of our like adult friendship and like now i'm a writer and he's a Twitch streamer. So I think it like was pretty formative for the both of us. Oh, wow. Um, so what's the age difference between you and your younger brother? Just three years. Oh, okay. And um, yeah. it, was it something that you both started playing World of Warcraft like independently and then kind of came together? Or did somebody first, you know, extend an olive branch, so to speak? Well, so... Uh, we only had one family computer for a really long time. And like, so that was like a thing that was like hotly contested. And uh, so we both played wow, but like, it was like, you got your hour. And then the other person was like, hanging out over your shoulder being like, your hours up, get off the computer. It's time for me to play. But I saved up enough money and bought myself a computer. I think I worked at like Burger King at the time. Okay. And like, yeah. And so I bought myself a Dell. And then when I got the Dell, um, that was right around when like the first expansion for World of Warcraft came out. And so we started just talking. And I think there was like this moment where we realized like, oh, now that we have two computers, we can play together. And so we we tried it out because we used to dabble with um, right at this point. Uh, there was like Zelda Four Swords Adventures where you could like hook your Game Boy Advance up to your GameCube and play like Zelda together. Um, and anyway, so we were like playing that uh, and working really well on that. So it was like sort of this moment where we're like, okay, well maybe we can like transfer this experience over to WoW and it worked. <laughs> uh, that's, I, that's kind of remarkable though. And I, the idea that like, you know, if you have uh, a difficult relationship or a strained, strained, not strange, a strained relationship, or even if just, I mean, you know, siblings fight, siblings argue, there's tension. Yep. If you add family trauma or a difficult home life or like any, any, if you put anything on top of it, whatever it might be, it makes it even like that much more difficult. Um you know, sometimes siblings grow closer together. Sometimes they grow closer apart. Like, you know, and I'm talking about with, with like pick and birdie in the story. Um, but it is interesting in terms of being able to get along like in the game. And that slowly starts to bleed into your like, like real life and like how that, how that works. Um, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I, I think like up until that point, I was pretty dismissive of it. Like I, I think like I'm 35, so I sort of grew up um, as like online gaming was sort of like on the come up. Like it was sort of it wasn't really, um, you know, when I was like 12, it just wasn't a thing. Like it just wasn't. You could like get dial up and maybe play Doom, 
with someone else. But like that was about it. And then yeah. like Half Life Two and Team Fortress and like those sorts of things were starting to come up. And as I was getting older, so it was like just an interesting thing for me because I was so dismissive of that up until that point because I thought, no, that's not really hanging out with people or that's not really of any sort of like emotional value. And right. then, you know, like, wow, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like, wow, genuinely did ruin my life for like two years where it was like, I would get up and like not even shower. I would just sit down and I would start playing wow on like a Saturday and I would play until I went to bed. But because it, it was just like, it's all consuming right in this really strange way but like if you take a step back from it and you can kind of like like anything if you experience it in moderation it's probably best um yeah but like when i look back on it and i reflect on it i kind of realize that like there were so many things that i was sort of lacking at that point in my life i was 17 and just like interpersonal skills and 17 years old don't always go hand in hand uh and so like learning to cooperate with people was like something that was really valuable to me. And it was something that I learned in a video game, which is wild. Well, it's just interesting to hear like the, the, the breadth of experience, you know, going from, uh, there are certain skills that like life skills that this game helped me with. And, um, my, you know, it helped my brother and I, in terms of our relationship, but also I would play it like way too much, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But it's like, you know, I, I think about now and I go, like, if I was 10 and Fortnite was a thing, like, I can understand spending every hour of every day on a game that's, like, free and updates constantly and has all sorts of, like, cosmetics and, like, the, you know, the things that are at uh, young gamers' fingertips right now is just so overwhelming to me. Like, I, I'm, like, fully old man mode now where I'm, like, I don't get it. I'm not going to play it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I played, I certainly played video games and I'm probably about nine or I'm nine or I guess, nine years older than you. Um, I certainly played video games, but I, I never got into like online, like multiplayer mm-hmm. or cooperative type games. But yeah, I mean, I have two kids. My oldest is 11 and her big birthday, her big gift for her 11th birthday was we finally got her a phone. And I mean, it, it is like a struggle. Because she is always on there playing road Roblox or some type of game with her friends, and it's like they spend all day at school, and then like she gets home, and if we don't put limits on it, she would be on that phone playing games and talking to her friends just like all night. Because that's like they can just go in there, they play whatever you know, whatever different games are within the the Roblox games or Among Us or whatever it might be, and yeah, it's yeah just, for sure. it can be consuming um but yeah i never was i mean i played video games um but i I just never got into like i i just i'm old enough i think i missed all of that and um never really got into it but i had friends who were like heavy into like world of warcraft and they loved it and they would tell me about their character and level and it sounded like they really enjoyed it but it was just something that i i (laughs) I kind of, I kind of missed my brother and I, our thing was the television show supernatural. We, when that first came nice. out, I think supernatural first came out in 2004 was the first season. I want to say, and we were, I don't know who first told the other about it. We're like, Oh, there's this new show coming out. It's about two brothers who like 
have family trauma and hunt demons. And I'm like, oh, let's watch it. And, uh, so we started watching it together. Like, And then even he, he's younger, but he moved out of the house first. And then I did. And we'd still make a point to, you know, meet every Wednesday or sometimes it would be two or three weeks. So we'd have episodes saved up because they were recorded. And uh, we watched every episode together. I will say by like the 10th season, we were like, can they cancel this? Because we need, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, we're like, enough, yeah. we're, but we're like pot committed at that point. We're like, I guess we're seeing this thing through to the end. <laughs> yeah. And that was back in the day where it was like 24 episodes a season too. So yeah. Yeah. We were like praying yeah, quite for the commitment. Yeah. Praying for like, uh, can some union go on strike so we can have half a season? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, but we did it. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. Some days we would be, you know, have like arguing, um, about something stupid, but we'd still get together and uh, we wouldn't talk during the episode, <laughs> but we would, <laughs> you know, spend time together. And now, I mean, I think my brother and I are, have weathered those storms and are, are, are pretty close. Um, we're spending a week in March for my 45th birthday in Ireland together. This will be our first like trip. So oh. I'm looking forward to that. Cool, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm 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 excited about it and uh it'll be nice to you know we've taken smaller trips but not th- nothing like a whole week just the two of us so we're leaving the families at home and and just going on a little bit of an adventure. Um but in any event to get back to cemetery kids don't die. Um it's interesting to see hear those types of concepts the like the ad- addictiveness of the game and you know, also having to deal with the, you know, the relationship between Pick and Birdie. And then you have their friends who are coming in, you know, as well, also like supporting them and and wanting to play the game. Um, you know, what did you think was important in terms of like, if you, once you had, I'm assuming you would have had like the Pick and Birdie first and then flesh out the rest of the world. Um, is that what happened and, and what kind of was important for you to the other characters you wanted to include in the story? It it definitely was, um, you know, the siblings came first for sure, but I also like wanted to really explore siblings who are friends, but also have like overlap, um, with their, their friend group, like people who are sort of like hanging out with both of them and are varied in age and that kind of thing. And at first I had actually five kids, um, but kind of like felt like that was going to be a disservice to one of them so i i made sure to sort of like look at it broadly and then consolidate the cast so um rounding out from like pick and birdie we've got wilson and enid and um i wanted to you know like when you're kind of common doing commentary on being a teenager i think it's important to sort of show a broad range um in terms of like not quite archetypes but just like personalities and approaches to the world, to the game, that kind of thing. So like you have Wilson, who's sort of a misanthropic, um, wants to be an artist, lacks the drive to sort of uh, create art. So that's sort of like what uh, he's escaping from to play the game. And then you have Enid, who's someone who actually is quite happy uh, with her life and quite sunny and... um, you know, diplomatic when it comes to some of the conflicts that that come up and isn't necessarily someone who would probably be playing this game if it weren't for her friends being so into it. 
I think we've all sort of been involved in something where, you know, I've watched plenty of hockey games, though I have no interest in hockey. Um, <laughs> I have friends who do, right? So it's like, if, you know, sometimes you just do stuff because you want to hang out with the people you like and, and they like that thing. Yeah. Um, so I sort of wanted to explore um, people who have different relationships to video games uh, as well, right? Like some of us play it to get closer to people. Some of us play games to escape. And some of us just play because there's something to do. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of the vibe that uh, Wilson and Eater bring. But also I wanted to make sure that um, without getting into spoilers, like when what happens at the end of the first issue happens, yeah. that Birdie has people who are there for her and ride with her and are sort of like involved in this. And it becomes like, okay, we're here to support you and we're going to go through this together and we're going to figure this out together because um, that's the time in your life when, when your friends are the most important thing in the world, right? Like it's before you've sort of started your own family and built out uh, longstanding relationships with a partner or whatever. And so your friends are everything at that point in your life. And so I really wanted to write about that um, because those like be it world of Warcraft or dungeons and dragons or magic, the gathering, or whatever, these games that we play with our friends are such communal experiences and they're so formative that it, you know, I have people that I've played magic the gathering with when I was like 21 that are still friends to this day. And it's like, before that we were just people who played casual magic at the same like comic book store or whatever. And now right. they're like ride or die friends, you know? Yeah. And so these are how these sort of bonds are created. And I wanted to make sure that this also feels formative for these characters. So if I ever get the chance to write more of them that like, we can kind of like, see how their relationships grow and change over time. Yeah. I mean that, you know, I, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's take a quick break. What in the Sam Hill is happening right now? What is that? Yeah, what you, you like Bart? Yeah, what you, oh, you like band of Bart. It's not my fault. You mumble. That makes sense. They're dropping some great new series right now. There's that one about a heavy metal guitarist in the 1970s with monsters, working class wizards. You know how we love monsters around here. And my friend Dakota Brown, he's working on a project, uh, Grandma Tilly's Hell Tech Mech with Lane Lloyd. I saw the preview for that, that is crazy. Jimmy even contributed to their anthology from the static and had Matt Sumo on the podcast to talk about his project, The Bardic Verses, which, Makes a lot of sense that the project landed there. Where can you find them? You need to get out more. They are in previews, or you can visit their website, bandabars.com, for all the latest. Can we turn the music off now? Thank you. No more surprises, minstrels, or anything like that, or I'll rent you out to the Ren Fair as a children's ride. Let's get back to the show. Uh, one of the th another thing is in terms of like the design of the, I guess the the, the game device, the Dream Wave, um, and so I, I'm also curious as how to Daniel Irizarry got involved in the project and especially with the design of some of the things because I always think with your collaborators that they're so interesting whether or not it's uh, I mean the whole like system of I breathed a body um, the <laughs> the you know, the, the phone device or, you know, from lonely receiver and now this dream wave, you know, machine. Um, it's so interesting. So many, you've had such different collaborators 
But so many of these things look like they could all be part of the same world, like a mix of uh, technology and organics that I find like fascinating. Um, is that like the Cronenberg influence or is that something else? Is that your collaborators? Like, what is it to get to the look of that thing? Because you're you're coming up with a game system. Somebody wears it could look like anything. But I see it and I'm like, that yeah. feels like something that should be in a Zach Thompson book. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's very much by design. Um, I do, I think a lot about uh, where technology is going. And I find technology just fascinating in terms of like, I think the, what I've said uh, for Lonely Receiver, I Read the Body, and this book as well, um, they're sort of ruminating on this like broad theme of how the technology we use ends up using us. And so in that way, um, I think it's interesting to create them in like this more like bioorganic space that feels uh, alive, that has this sort of like uncanny valley feeling to it. So like when you look at it, you're sort of like repulsed, but all the characters in, in the stories don't have any sort of reaction to it. It's just normal. Yeah. And, and I think that's like very, uh, that's how Cronenberg does a lot of his strange objects in his uh, movies is just like it's a normal thing it's presented in the world as a very normal thing and I usually go to my collaborators and I say hey here's this device this is sort of this thing that we're going to build the narrative around um, I want it to look alive but I like beyond that I just say hey it's a video game console I did say it hooks into your ears and sits on the back of your neck and it looks alive and that's it and then Daniel Yerzari, uh did literally one sketch, and it was the thing that is in the book. Um, That's Because he awesome. just got it. <laughs> yeah, he just got it right away and was like, yep, like I know exactly what this is. And and I was just like, yeah, you nailed it. And it, it like, I just like the way that it sits on the back of your head. Like it kind of looks like this hunchbacky, gross thing. But you can also one an element of it that you can understand intuitively just like okay it's definitely hooking into your brain through your ears and like that's that you're not going to get any more explanation um because um something that i i just personally don't like is when things like that are over explained or or you know broken down in a way where it's like well here's how this thing was created or here's how it works it's like that's that just becomes what the story is about if you do that so for me, it's like we design it, we figure it all out, and then those details can just be revealed visually over time um, as you read the book. Yeah, yeah, I know, I, I, I get that because you know, um, not everything has to be like explained like it's a how-to manual, you know. Yeah. Especially with comics yeah. being a visual medium, it is nice to kind of discover stuff. Um, I mean, I, I think I've read Lonely Receiver at least three times now, and I still discover like little things about it that I missed. I, I've, I've said this on the podcast before, but I'm, I'm like, I've always been a very fast reader, and I've had to like really train myself with comics to like slow down and pay attention to the art because I have a tendency to just like fly through the words. And then I'm like, oh, I don't know what I just looked at. So I have to go back. So I, which I like yeah. sometimes because I'm still discovering like all kinds of, you know, new things that I might've missed, but it really forces me to kind of take my time when I read comics. Um, I do that too. I, I read things very quickly and um, I write my comics particularly to be reread um, in that I, I try to, 
like to densify them almost like where there's like, okay, there's the a story that's just being told to you in, in the writing, the B story that's happening in the art. And then like the C, which is like what's happening in the background of all of these scenes um, that's telling you something about the world or what have you. And like, I don't know. I, I have a lot of opinions about some comics being too, the brevity of, of some reads, you know, where you pick something up and you spent $5 on it and it takes five minutes to read. Mm-hmm. Fine. Cool. Whatever. Yeah. It's just not necessarily for me. I got into comics because I was drawn to um, comics that deal with really interesting and challenging ideas and concepts. And I think that like, because you have that visual element, you can really take something that is hard to explain or um, maybe boring to read and create a very engaging way to uh, share that information with people. Like there's so much about mushrooms and I breathe the body that, um, (laughs) you know, that people would probably not want to read, but because you're pairing it with this very visceral body horror, you kind of get to, or at least I believe that I get to indulge the things that I like because I'm being like, okay, I'm going to teach you about mushrooms and how they work. But I'm also going to show you all kinds of horrific imagery at the same time. So it feels like justified in some way in my yeah. mind. Uh, hey, well, you know what? I, I will say it, it stays with you because I still <laughs> will see something that talks about like a, like a fungal network or something about mushrooms. And I, it's the first thing I think of. I think I just, I tweeted a, a picture of a, a beer I had recently that had like yeah. mushrooms on the label. And I think I tagged you and Andy in it. Cause I was like, <laughs> first thing I thought of was like, I should sit and read. I breathe the body again while I drink this. <laughs> <laughs> I I get people to this day, like that book came out in 2021. And it, so it's now about three years old. And I still get yeah. people tagging me in mushroom photos like th- to this day. And I love it. Like, cause it's like, I, you know, that book kind of just came during the pandemic. I fell in love with mushrooms. And then I was like, Oh, this actually mushrooms are this interesting thing. That's sort of like, uh, pairs really, really well with like the nebulous sense of body horror, because it's like, we don't really know much about them. And there are these like very interesting things that you can kind of put into horror because they sort of, they're not alive. They're not dead. They occupy this weird middle space. And like, mm, that's just perfect for horror. Oh yeah. And then I, plus you, you add in the elements with, I, I breathe the body of like social media influencer. And what does that mean? And then you tie it in again with your, are we using the technology or is it using us? And it, it all paired, you know, very well with that to make a very, gross at times but compelling comic book (laughs) yeah and like with cemetery kids it's flirting with similar things but one of the things that i wanted to do was like i'm aware that uh i breathe the body and lonely receiver are challenging and uh maybe even like alienating uh in in certain ways and some of that is by design i think like it's good to have a specific audience in mind for stuff, but cemetery kids is very much. How do I take these things that I like talking about and make it more approachable for people? So we still got some really kinetic action scenes that are very like driven by like, you know, there's gore and there's like people getting cut in half or, uh, 
you know, people getting disemboweled and stuff, but it's more over the top and heavily in, influenced by like manga um, and bringing that sort of like really kinetic element into musings on what it means to occupy two different spaces and what it means to sort of like um, find that you can connect better with people in a secondary reality than you can in your primary reality. And what does that say about who you are? Are you the person who wakes up and leaves the game or is your character actually more you? And asking those sort of philosophical questions, but wrapping it in um, really over the top horror action. Yeah, and, and Daniel's action scenes are for like the in-game stuff are yeah. phenomenal. Um, fantastic sound effects as well. Like I just love some of the the sounds of I don't know are they like in the game are they fighting like fishmen at some point like early yeah, on? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it just, yeah. That's fantastic, and it it really is interesting. Um, I especially like the like when the dialogue between the characters in game is you know is not in sync with like the action you know they're going and they're fighting but they're also having a conversation about like something else or um i I mean i I just i really enjoy that aspect of it um and uh but yeah daniel's action scenes in that are just top notch i'm very lucky to have a collaborator like daniel because he's just the perfect fit for the book and has just um we've been we jived really really well from the get-go but like uh every time i brought him something as like a general concept he's just been able to elevate it and like knock it out of the park the simple things like um the video game sequences like you're saying earlier um the way they're paneled on the page is very like dynamic and diagonal and um all the gutters in those scenes are black and then when you get into the real world, you have very rigid paneling, um, lower panel counts for the most part, purely white gutters. And then with Brittany, um, Brittany has used uh, like more desaturated color palette in the game. So everything feels like icky and gross and has this like yeah. almost like secondary colors as a primary sort of driving feature, but putrid. Uh, and then in the real world, very primary driven, um, very bright and colorful and very like oversaturated. Again, just trying to juxtapose those two realities, but they also, to Daniel's credit, still feel seamlessly part of the same world of the comic, uh, which is very difficult to do. They, you know, they look different enough, but they still look like they belong together, which, and again, all by his design, been awesome. Yeah, I mean they 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 all feel of the of the same comic. Like it doesn't feel like you're reading, you know, two different books, which it has to be tough to do because you know you have very you know human characters, you know, when they're in the real world, and the the looks of their characters in you know, Nightmare Cemetery are like very different. But it it does feel like the transitions are are very easy. Yeah, I mean, not easy was... to do. I mean, you know, they 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 feel. Mm-hmm seamless <laughs> yeah and and that was very much by design in terms of like the way that i tried to script things but also the way that daniel's like rendered them on the page we we thought a lot about like in the early stages there was talk about like well maybe we actually bring two artists under the book and like one artist draws the 
the video game sections and one artist draws the real world sections. But um, I actually, had, I was on Twitter like the day that we were talking about casting artists and I had just read Daniel's work in Zeno uh, at Oni. And he posted something that was like, I'm trying to render like digital spaces. Like I want to try and create like, um, he was doing, um, some sort of, it wasn't like ink wash, but some sort of like, uh, I forget what the term is, but like the, the dots, I, um, like my brain is failing me right now, Okay, but it has this like sort of digital sort of like distortion-y feel. You mean like, and I just saw like an eight bit look or like pixelization or. Yeah. Kind of like a pixelization of, of like someone's like bottom half as they were like phasing out of reality. And I just saw that and I was like, oh my God, he's the guy. So I emailed Sierra at Oni and I was like, I think we just need to hire Daniel. Um, And luckily he was down and like, I think this is, I could be wrong, but I think this is his first book at a publisher as well. Like he's done some um, Kickstarter stuff in the past and uh, done some shorts in Xeno, but I think this is his first like mini series proper. Um, And like, you know, he's going to be a superstar uh, once people read this book, because I've been like, been sitting on these pages for months just with like, you know, absolutely ecstatic. And I think that it's just those character designs just in general, like in nightmare cemetery, I like, I want to dress up as them, you know, like I love birdies sort of like hunter mask and stuff. It's just so good. Yeah. I was going to say birdies, my favorite birdies. So, so good. Um, and the uh, I, the name just went right out of my head. Is, is it? It's Edith, right? Or Enid? Enid. Enid. Yeah. Okay. I well, I had a fifty percent shot. I knew it was one or the other. But I like <laughs> I like Enid's design too, which I yeah. again I I felt was very much of uh, again reminded me of like I breathed a body or even No One's Rose. <laughs> yeah, I got to get the mushroom people in there. Gotta represent you got them. to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, those character designs are are you know fantastic. Uh, yeah, they're great. Um, what was the in terms of like the writing process for this when you you have this idea and you want to kind of tackle this? Like, I'm curious. Um, is this something you sat on a while, or you're like this this is this is I know the next project I want to tackle, and like kind of how long does it take you to really to to script something like? like this, like just an issue one from concept to, you know, you have a finished draft. I'm well, so I've been sitting on this since like 2019 ish. Um, basically as soon as I was done working on, I breed the body or like the general concept of that, I sort of was thinking a lot about, just technology and digital spaces and that kind of thing. And I thought if you're looking at the sort of three prongs of online spaces, it's sort of like your phone is prong one social media and how we engage with that and like influencers and all that other crap is prong two. And then video games being like kind of the third sort of way that we primarily engage with online spaces and technology. And so, um, I started to think about like hmm. the genesis of the idea is rooted in the ending. So I have to be careful about how I okay. talk about that. 
Um, because it, there's something that happens towards the end of the book that um, I've been thinking about a lot. And it's sort of like, hmm. I'll have to pause there so I don't spoil anything. But what yeah. I will say is when it comes to from like a, the process of like coming up with an idea like this yeah. is very much like, okay, I want to do some commentary on video games and I want to talk about that space, but I also want to talk about my personal experience with video games. So it made sense to sort of root the protagonists in, you know, teenagers. And then I sort of built out, well, what is this world like? that this game exists in and built out the console and how the game works and then sort of went back and go, okay, well, what sort of potential plot could happen here? Um, I'm not necessarily a very like plot driven writer and that like, I don't often come up with a, a plot and then like work backwards from there. I often come up with characters, then world, and then sort of figure out, how those characters sort of take me through that world. Oh, okay. It's a little bit slower on the uptake, but once I get going, um, so like I started working on it in February of last year, um, putting it together. I probably started scripting in July and then um, I was done. I passed in the last script right before New York Comic Con. Um, oh, wow. So like in October. So like it only took me like three and a half months to write the whole book once I was going, but I tend to change up my workflow a little bit. So like, usually what I do is like, when I start a new book like this, I try to write at least two, if not three scripts right in a row um, in terms of just like, so I have that continuity. I've had so many points in my career where I'll be writing something and then something else comes in and sort of derails that project. And then you have to end up developing a new book. Um, at the same time, you just finished a number one or something. So you end up stepping away from a book for a month, maybe two sometimes between issues. And I find that that, um, one, it breaks that sort of like mindset because like once you're in a space and you're thinking about a world, it's so much easier to sort of like snowball and just let yourself sort of get caught up in it. Or at least it is for me. Um, I've gotten to a better rhythm these days because now I've been doing this for a while. But I try to really, like, when I know a project is coming down the pipeline, try to just carve it out. So I usually work ahead on things. And then it usually take a little bit longer to write the last issue and sort of break that continuity so I can kind of go back and tinker with everything. Mm -hmm. My idea is always, like, before someone's finished drawing the first issue, I'm done writing the last issue so I can create a sense of continuity between every issue in the mini series. So it's like, okay, I wrote this thing in issue four and it needs to be seated in issue two. Well, issue two is not being drawn yet. So I can go back and I can tinker that and I can make sure it all sort of fits together um, because comics are crazy and they're made fast. And uh, you have to sort of make sure as the writer that you're ahead of everyone all the time. So um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. No, it, no, no, it, it definitely did. I know I kind of find that just interesting. I, I, especially the idea of like taking the characters and story and like not being like in particularly plot driven because, you know, I, I do think with some of your, your comics, like something like nature's labyrinth, I would think, you know, 
seem to be, um, you know, plot heavy. Like, there's a lot that happens, but I, you know, to to think you start off with the characters in the world and like move on from there. Um, no, I just, I just think I find everyone's process interesting, so I just always like to kind of figure out how how folks do it. Yeah, and I mean, Nature's Labyrinth is an interesting one because um, that was something Madcape came to me with, and they said, "Here is sort of the general plot that we want this thing to to follow." Um, do you want to create some characters and sort of like, you know, tinker with it as you will? And so like, that's something that came to me sort of almost fully formed. And then I just sort of like played around with it and massaged it to a way that was to my liking. But um, yeah. And then like, there's other things where like, you can't really write something like undone by blood without figuring out the plot. Well, yeah, that, that would be on. the exception. <laughs> yeah. And, and same with like, it's it's interesting it depends on each project but like noir or crime stuff very much is like okay how does this crime get resolved or sort of like if you know how the crime is solved or who committed the crime or whatever you can kind of build backwards from there um and then oftentimes find an interesting character to sort of bounce around in that space um so yeah, it just kind of depends on the genre, but I find I do, especially in the sci-fi world building uh, right. space, it's so important to sort of just like let your world and your characters sort of exist and then figure out how they're going to take you through the general journey. All right. Um, well, and speaking of crime comics, though, in addition to Cemetery Kids Don't Die, I saw that your next, I think, project after that I think it was with Boom Studios, uh, Blow Away, which is described. I saw I saw one news story that described it as Fargo meets Rear Window. I don't know if that was from you or from uh, whoever had written the article, but um, that's the one that's coming next after Cemetery Kids Don't Die. Yeah, that's coming out in April. Um, and yeah, that's a that's a sort of like apt description. It's very like uh, so. It's a wildlife videographer who's stationed in the Arctic, um, and a place called Baffin Island in Northern Canada. Um, and she's basically working for like a planet earth type show, but she's, she's been stationed out by herself for about 45 days. Um, a month and a half of isolation, as we all know, probably through like COVID and everything, you start to go a little wacky. Um, so she's out there looking at a mountain and she notices that there's climbers a couple hundred kilometers away. And all of a sudden, they kind of become more interesting to her than the thing that she's there to record. Um, so over the course of a couple of days, she's watching them, and they seem to have a tense relationship. And she's too far away to hear them or sort of know any details about them. But she gets wrapped up in their story. And then as that progresses, um, she starts to come up with like a narrative for why these guys are out there. And then she witnesses something that may or may not be a crime. And and sort of the whole thing uh, behind the series is sort of like the subjective nature of the truth and sort of how, um, how we often get carried away in the lives of total strangers and, and regular people can become the objects of like public fascination. I think a lot about like, you know, there's been plenty of times the last couple of years where someone's disappeared and then people are on TikTok and they're dissecting their last couple like TikTok videos and being like, look at the book she was reading. It's a clue or, or what have you. And it's like, I don't think any of that is really 
rooted in any sort of reality, but we really, as a society, have like true crime brain these days. And oh, so yeah. I really wanted to talk about that and sort of what that can do, but also put it in an environment that's entirely removed from all the culture that influences it, but still see if anything kind of bleeds through. Um, right. And then beyond all that, it's sort of like uh, an homage to two old movies, um, one called Blow Up and then one called Blow Out. And so this is why this is called Blow Away. Both of those uh, films are about a character who may or may not witness a crime. Um, one is a photographer in Blow Up, and then Blow Out is a sound engineer who may record a crime. And the idea being that like the logical progression of that 40 years on is someone who's recording it with extreme telephoto lenses and, and sort of cameras that just didn't exist back in the day. and. I, I have a background in film, so I'm very interested in sort of like um, the sort of Hitchcockian idea of like, well, if you show images in a certain sequence and you have a certain mood attached to them, you can think one thing. But the idea being that like every issue of Blow Away is going to show you the same sequence of 16 images. But how you feel about those 16 images is going to be very different every time you see them. Um, and so the idea is like, can you trust your eyes? Oh, I love that. I was just looking up uh, <laughs> while you were saying that because I had the two films sounded familiar, um, that you mentioned, but, uh, so it's, uh, directed by Antonioni and then the other by De Palma. So, uh, no slouches yeah. in terms of influences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm. I'm very fascinated with De Palma in particular. I find um, he's someone who is like genuinely a phenomenal filmmaker, but not really part of the cultural conversation these days. And um, there's so many things that he sort of pioneered in terms of camera techniques and, and sort of like, you know, he's like an eighties version of Alfred Hitchcock, which is just like unreal. And yeah, I could go on and on and on, but like, yeah, so I'm very fascinated in sort of bringing that sort of vibe to comics. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's awesome. I like that. Uh, also, I think De Palma has had such an interesting career, at least in terms of the, like the films he's directed. Um, yeah. Not that it's a bit all over the place, but um, like, if you scroll through his IMDb and look at some of the films and you're just like, you know, it's, there, there's there's some very it's a very interesting trajectory or like yeah path if you look at you know especially i mean I, I just i called it up here and it's like i mean you know the untouchables casualties of war the bonfire the vanities raising cane carlito's way the snake eyes mission to mars <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean and then, it's and then like the first mission impossible movie is de palma right like yep it is yeah know, people and like it's got his fingerprints all over it. It's purely a De Palma movie, but like none of those other Mission Impossible movies are De Palma movies at all. But it's just interesting. He's like definitely a journeyman director who's gone and done all kinds of big Hollywood pictures. But I wouldn't say anyone these days um, is like a De Palma super fan. You know, like a modern sort of film goer anyway. But like I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Yeah, I really liked Casualties of War. Um, I thought nice. that was a. I I really thought that was a an interesting interesting film. Um, I remember, you know, when that came out and first seeing that and thinking like, I, I don't know, it just seemed maybe it was because that's Michael J. Fox, right? And like, uh, is in that in a very different uh, role for him. Isn't I it? Know, it? I I don't know. I'm gonna look it up right now. Um, this is now. Yeah, this is now yeah, the Brian yes. De, right? Yeah, and like Sean yeah. Penn's in it. Yeah, yeah, and John C. Yeah. Riley. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nice. This is now the Brian nice. De Palma podcast. This is the Palma yeah, cast. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> We're just gonna yeah. <laughs> Zach and I are gonna take you through the films of Brian De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say no. <laughs> Oh, well, Zach, I, this has been fantastic uh, for me. Hopefully our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Um, but Oni Press, Cemetery Kids Don't Die, uh, February 7th, issue one is out. Make sure you tell your local comic book shop that you want to get it. I've read it. It's fantastic. And if you're not familiar with Zach Thompson's work, please do yourself a favor. His work with uh, Lonnie Nadler, but go get the drags. Read that first. Um and then I would say move on to like her infernal descent. Check out I Breathe the Body, please. And um, yeah, also don't forget April, you can let your comic book shop know uh that you want to if you're into any type of prime comic or if the blow away blow, blow away sounds interesting to you coming out in April. Um definitely put that on your list. I know I am going to. Uh, cause that sounds like it's going to be right up my alley. So, uh, yeah, check all that stuff out. And, um, Zach, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, man. All right. And, uh, so, uh, please listeners, uh, rate and review us, do all those things, uh, you know, and if, if you like the podcast, uh, let us know and we'll, we'll keep doing it and keep talking to comic book, uh, creators, writers, artists, letterers, uh, whoever will come on and chat about comics with us. And, um, Thank you uh, very much for listening, and um, I'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, Zach. Thanks. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.